0: forever. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. We are in Acts, and we're looking uh, at uh, two pieces of the same story that have the intrusion of what takes place in chapter 12 that we looked at last week. So we're in Acts 11:19. 19. And when we finish that chapter, we'll turn over uh, to chapter 13 for just a couple of verses. If you would, please, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met together with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Abagus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judah. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And then chapter 13. I'm actually going to take the last verse of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucis of Cyrene, Manaon, the member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Oh, gracious Holy Spirit, be pleased to enlighten our hearts and minds. Speak tenderly to us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may take your seats. <laughs> well, some people and organizations are so <laughs> extraordinary that they rise to prominence, and they deserve to be studied and imitated. They offer lessons to those who will look for them. Now, this is March, and for fans of college basketball, this is the capstone of the season. And even if you don't follow basketball and don't have a bracket, you can admire the skill, the teamwork, the athleticism, Uh, that's on display. Uh, Behind the performance of uh, these basketball players are years of discipline, self-denial, perseverance, training, and the encouragement of a long line of coaches. And there are many life lessons uh, to be taken from that. In his best-selling book, Built to Last, Jim Collins, uh, drew on a six-year research project um, at uh, Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. He and, and a group of colleagues sorted through over 1,000 companies. They screened them to find 18 that were exceptional and long-lasting. And they compared them uh, to uh, their top competitors, asking What is it that makes these companies truly exceptional and different from others? Well, Luke's doing something like that here as he invites us to consider this exceptional individual Barnabas and an exceptional church. And what's said here uh, has application to every church, even if they don't occupy the place in history that the Church of Antioch does. Antioch would become the center of the church's global mission. Jesus uses this church to set into motion the movement that we call today Christianity. It's a movement that took on the Roman Empire that shaped the foundation of Western civilization and is present in almost every nation on earth. This is the great thing that Jesus is doing, not just in our text, but the rest of Acts. This is what we're going to see unfolding, this movement of God uh, to bring the gospel to the nations. And if you're here today and you're looking uh, from the outside in at Christianity, you'll see some of the marks of a healthy, dynamic church. And here's something of what Christ offers in the gospel. And if you're here as a member or a friend of the congregation, this text sets out a yardstick to take the measure of our congregation. Uh, There are practical and concrete guidance as to how to be a stronger and healthier church. But before... Uh, we look at that, we need to, well, face some objections to the very idea that there should be missions at all. Haven't we grown beyond all this? Isn't religion about to disappear? Don't all religions offer, well, equally valid ways to God? And isn't it arrogant for anyone to claim that they're right? Aren't all missionaries really just arrogant? Well, It may be that this is your question. A lot of people outside the church have this question, and increasingly people within it uh, do. Let me dispel the first uh, issue. Religion is not about to disappear on planet Earth. It's true that there is uh, an increasing number of people uh, who find organized religion not to their uh, suiting, but uh, in addition to the world's great religions, such as Islam and Buddhism and, and uh, Judaism, there are thousands of religions, and hundreds are born every uh, year. Uh, there is an inquenchable, insatiable appetite within human beings to connect to something larger than themselves to find meaning and purpose outside of themselves, to turn to some form of spirituality. And part of the reason that there's so many uh, religions being uh, born each year is that people are reaching out and taking pieces here and there and this idea and blending it together. And many, many people have their own designer religion, their own personal uh, religion that doesn't fit in with any of the major religions. Now, it's easy from a distance to think that all religions teach the same thing. But up close, if you examine what they teach about what is God like, uh, what's wrong, how do you fix what's wrong, what does it mean to be human? Well, they give distinctive answers. And many of these answers are mutually exclusive and incompatible. To say they're all alike is like saying that the world is monochrome. It's just a denial of the spectrum of visible light. Is it really arrogant to say that blue is not yellow? Now, it is true, it's sadly true, that some Christians are arrogant and they speak in a condescending Condescending manner to people, but it's not arrogant to hold that there are some things that are true and insisting that, uh, that they're being true really makes a difference. Wishing that red were green doesn't make it so, and acting like it is at a busy intersection can have terrible consequences. Now, Luke tells the story of an extraordinary church in a series of brief scenes. There are five of them, and I'm not going to speak an equal amount of time on each of the five of them, and we really only can look at a few of the lessons that are contained uh, with them. The first scene is in chapter 11, it's verses 19 to 21. If you have a Bible, you might find it uh, helpful to follow along closely, it begins with what seemed like a disaster. Stephen, who is a rising star in the early church, is charged with blasphemy and then stoned to death by an angry mob. The next day, pent-up anger and resentment uh, became widespread and the church was scattered. Not the senior leadership of the church, not the apostles, but the rank and file, what we call today uh, the, the laypeople of the church, uh, And Luke describes it in verse 19 and 20 this way. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh, As they went, they gossiped the gospel to others, Some spoke only to Jews, but others from the island of Cyprus and from an area of North Africa went to Antioch. Now Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman world. Uh, It was unusually multicultural and cosmopolitan even for a large city. The city officials encouraged immigration. They gave uh, Jews full citizenship And there were large and vital communities of Jews and Greeks and Romans and Asians and Africans uh, there. It's what we'd call today a world-class city. Think London or New York or Singapore. It was urban. It was multicultural. uh, People rubbed up against each other. They were very tolerant of of one another and, and new ideas. Now, these unnamed Christians did what no one had considered doing before. They broadly began to proclaim the gospel to people who were not Jewish, either by birth or by religion. In fact, the ESV makes a special note uh, to clarify this use of that uh, word. This was a bold innovation, which enjoyed God's favor and approval. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, these men had not embraced the view of evangelism that was held in the church of Jerusalem. These unnamed people who were discerning and thoughtful and forward-looking pioneers had absorbed what Jesus and Stephen had taught, that keeping kosher in the temple were now irrelevant because of what Jesus had done. And that there are no sacred places uh, for uh, Christians and Christianity doesn't require, Jesus doesn't ask people to give up their language or culture to follow him. And if we desire to be more effective and see a greater response in the gospel, then we're going to need to develop into a church full of lay evangelists. For that to happen... We're going to have to leave the comfortable nest we're in. Uh, for some of us, that means we're going to have to meet and people that we've never met before. For others of you, it may be that you need to deepen some acquaintances into real friendships, so that you get to know a person well enough that the deeper things of life can be talked about. We need bold action based on theologically rooted innovation. Innovation that gave rise in this instance to crossing cultures. They crossed cultures. You see, what they did that was innovative here besides going to different people is they articulated the gospel in a new way. Not Jesus the hope of Israel, but Jesus as Lord. And these two characteristics of bold action lay ministry initiative. The apostles did not initiate this. this wasn't their idea. This was them acting, uh, led by the Spirit, understanding the implications of what Jesus uh, had taught. And it was their lay initiative that crossed these cultural uh, boundaries, these barriers. And it was a strategic move, and it would have far-reaching consequences. And so the second scene is in verses 22 to 24. 24. In verse 22, we're told this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. That's the beginning of the second scene. You see, they did this because uh, some were suspicious and negative about this innovation. They weren't going to accept this without sending one of their uh, own to sign off on it. And of course, it's a good thing to have accountability for missional uh, ministries, for church uh, plants, for new works, for missionaries serving on the field. The other reason that Barnabas was sent was because of who he was. Luke writes, And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, Barnabas is discerning. You see, he discerns God's grace. He sees a work of God here, and he rejoices in it. He recognizes God's fingerprints, and he's an encourager of what he sees. He encourages these people. Barnabas saw a real work of God. Now, if he'd been a narrow-minded man, he easily could have turned the church away from this new form of gospel communication and mission. It you know, might have split the church right then and there. There might have ended up being two churches, but an all-wise God arranged for Barnabas to go, a generous and wise man, and he exhorts these new believers. Now, that may sound a bit more confrontational than it actually is, because he spoke to their hearts in a way that engendered loyalty to God and steadfastness as they undoubtedly faced the hardships that come in following Christ. And so there's a couple of leadership lessons here to note. Um, And one of them is this, that to be a leader, in fact to lead well, is less about your skill set, about your gifts, about your abilities, and it's far more about who you are. It's about being a person of integrity. There being a correspondence between who you are in public and who you are in private. These should not be two different uh, people. You shouldn't seem to be one kind of person in public and in fact a very different kind of person uh, in uh, actuality. And you see, the reason why that's so important, it's Barnabas's character, his integrity that people find attractive and so they follow him, they listen uh, to him, they benefit Uh, From his leadership. And this is true. It doesn't matter if it's at home with children or at school or at work or at church. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to achieve some sort of, well, almost uh, amazing level of Christ likeness to be a person of integrity. No, people of integrity are honest about, well, I don't measure up in this area. I still need the transforming grace of Christ here. I'm still a work in progress. It's, it's that honesty that they're not hiding, that they recognize they need to continue to come to Christ uh, for uh, grace. The other lesson is that Barnabas knows his limitations. He realizes that there's more work here than he can do on his own. And he doesn't build this ministry around himself. He travels about 100 miles north to get Saul, or the Apostle Paul as we know him. This man whose background, he he knew uh, that he was raised in a Roman city, that he was immersed in Greek culture. He was very knowledgeable in the scriptures. Not that he was ideally suited to participate alongside of him. And Barnabas wasn't threatened by him. Even though he probably knew that Saul's gifts were greater than his own. You see, godly leaders encourage ministry in others. They invest in others. They create ways to involve them in ministry so they would experience it. They mentor and uh, coach and help develop their potential. And this is so needed today. It's needed in the church. Officers especially in a church should take responsibility to do this. Not just so that there are more officers, people to replace them, uh, but so that there would be small group leaders. In fact, every small group leader should have an assistant leader or two that they're raising up, that they're giving opportunities uh, to develop and grow. There's a need in the church of people who will uh, lead with their administrative gifts in area of ministry, like Judy does uh, for nursery. And innovative ministry that impacts a community will require still more leaders. And actually, just about everybody would benefit from having a mentor or a coach in their lives. Husbands and wives need mentors, especially in the early days of their marriage, but sometimes in the middle years, too, because sometimes the things that didn't get dealt with in the early years surface and they have more of a bite later on. Uh, Parents need mentors and coaches to navigate the responsibilities of raising children through every stage. No one has enough wisdom to do that well on their own. Students need uh, mentors all the way through young adulthood. I had a group of people who invested in me over uh, the years. And like Barnabas uh, uh, in his relation to Saul, they believed in me. He believed in Saul. He encouraged me, went and got him here. And I had a whole group of people uh, that encouraged me. In fact, I still have a coach, and a mentor uh, today. And they offer encouragement, courage, support. I am a far better pastor than I would have been uh, without them. The third scene is this. It starts in verse uh, 26. And it's easy to miss and not catch what's happening here. And when when he found Uh, Saul. he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In other words, this group of lay evangelists with the strengthening ministry of Barnabas and Saul become a movement that's noticed in this city. Their distinctive lifestyles impact the entire uh, city. A movement is born here. They gave them the name Christian. Christians didn't choose that name. In fact, Christians won't use this name until about 60 years later to describe themselves. It's a pejorative. It wasn't a nice thing, but it labeled those people, those people. There's another group of people now here in Antioch. And the reason they got labeled this way is they led a distinctive lifestyle. And they led a distinctive lifestyle, not just because they had faith in Christ, but because Barnabas and Saul invested in them in life-on-life ministry. They discipled them in a life-on-life way. Uh, Paul writes about uh, this. He describes what this is like in his letter to the Thessalonians in the second chapter. And he describes it, and you can uh, look at this later, but let me just read a couple verses here. He writes, Nor did we seek glory from people, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of his own children. And so being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you've been very dear to us. And he goes on and adds, And you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children, We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. In other words, Barnabas and Saul modeled for uh, these new believers what it looked like to follow uh, Christ. They invited people into their lives. They didn't just talk to them. It was more than that. It wasn't just about making sure that they understood uh, certain things uh, were uh, true. They shaped their lives by their life contact with each other. In our small group ministries, one of the places, one of the ways, it's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that that can take uh, place. But it takes intentionality so that when you meet, it's not just a social time where you're really seeking to share your life in such a way with each other that you influence each other, you help each other understand a little bit better what it means to follow Christ. The fourth scene is unfolded in chapter 13, and so is the fifth. The fourth scene is just this little verse, the first verse. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And these five names point to a great diversity of leadership, racially, ethnically, culturally, and socioeconomically. I don't want to belabor this, but Simeon and Menaean are both uh, Jewish names. But Simeon's also a respectable Roman name. It's very likely he's a Roman citizen, just like uh, Paul is. Simeon has a nickname that we're told here, uh, Niger, which strongly suggests that he had a dark uh, complexion. He's most likely a descendant of a Jewish proselyte from North Africa. Lucius is from North Africa, we're told that, and he's from one of the Roman colonies uh, there. And Menaean uh, may have shared the same wet nurse that Herod did, but even if he didn't, it's clear that he was a man of a privileged background, and Barnabas was well off enough to give a piece of land, we're told earlier in the book of Acts. This diversity of leadership demonstrates that the gospel is equally intended for people of all races and cultures and people groups. And this church that had had all of these people, and they're all in leadership together, says that there was no pride or prejudice at work in this church. Now, fashioning uh, such a community, uh, maintaining and building unity in such a community requires great things of its leaders. It requires them to put on Christ. It requires uh, them uh, to interact with people in such a way that they model the love and acceptance of Christ. And it calls for great humility to relate to people who really come from a different background uh, than your own. It, It stretched them. The leadership stretched, and so the church was able to embrace. And even the leadership itself reflected the embracing this great diversity. But there's also something else said here about this deep community. It's the end of chapter 11, and it's this. They were committed to being connectional. You see, a prophet came and told them that there would be a great famine, and it would affect the church in Judea. And so they took up a generous offering for that church to support in its time of crisis. And we've just done that here in Ukraine. Of course, we're Presbyterians, and if you're not familiar with what that means, among the many things it means is that we're connectional. We recognize that we need others, that we're involved with others, that we do ministry together. However, there's another level of connection that's needed if the gospel's going to impact a diverse area like the one we live in. And that is we need to find other churches to partner with uh, that agree with us about what the essentials are, uh, but may differ with us about secondary things. Not that they're unimportant things, but we don't have to agree about all worship practices to be able to do the good works that Jesus expects his followers to do that bring praise uh, from those who are outside uh, the church. It'll take discernment to do that, but the church's in areas that do that together have a greater impact for the gospel than any one church can possibly uh, have. The last scene is these two verses in chapter 13, 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now here in this fifth scene is something that's so important, but it would be so easy to to miss. The church leaders sought God together. It's hard not to read these verses and imagine that this wasn't an extended period of time, whether it was most of a day or over several days, we're not told. But we are told they worshipped and they fasted and undoubtedly fasting was a part, a, a supplement uh, to their prayers. It's, and that all expressed their seeking. They did more than pray as often we do. Often the leaders do this. We, we pray at the beginning of a meeting. It's often uh, very short. But this wasn't a short uh, prayer offered at the beginning of the meeting uh, where the leaders shared their ideas with each other. Now these Were people seeking uh, together these leaders to discern the will of God? Luke doesn't tell us how it is that they came to understand that it was God's will that Barnabas and Saul be set apart for this mission. But it's clear that they had discerned that to be so. And the rest, as they say, is history. We'll get much of that history here in the book of Acts This is one of the most important lessons for the church today. And this is hard, especially for us, I think, as Americans. It's hard for very uh, wise, highly educated people not to simply rely on your resources as a church and your human resources and your human wisdom in making uh, plans, I would say increasingly in the broader scope of things, more and more Christian organizations and churches realize the limitations of mere human strategic planning. They want to receive God's direction in their leadership. They know there's many ideas. If they have open conversation, there are many, many ideas and directions they could move in. This practice of seeking God to know his will to receive concrete direction to advance the mission of the church is much needed today. It's not just needed by global missions organizations. It's needed in every local church. Let me recap very quickly. Here we have this extraordinary church. It has this pivotal place in the history of the world. But it has these traits that we should learn from and seek to imitate, emulate to the best of our ability. Here's a remarkable church that was started by lay ministry and Paul and Barnabas encouraged lay ministry. The ongoing ministry of sharing the gospel happened not by Saul and Barnabas. But the people, as they encouraged them, that's how the gospel spread in Antioch, continued to spread uh, that way. Lay ministries one of the hallmarks of effective, healthy, dynamic churches. And we see that churches, uh, this church, its people had a distinctive Christian lifestyle in part because of, They engaged in life-on-life discipleship, and the city noticed. These people didn't look just like everybody else. They were distinctive, and so they got called a name. They were labeled. And they had deep community that overcame barriers, the barriers that normally divide people, and uh, they were in connection with others. They saw themselves, you see, as a part of a larger uh, movement, and they practiced group discernment. Oh, how every church I've ever served needs to grow in these things. No church I've ever served has arrived in this. And uh, at the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to pray for the meetings, the Officers in the transition team are having uh, this coming weekend. Um, we need to pray uh, that the Lord would be pleased to speak deeply. It not just be uh, communication mind to mind, but that we'd be truly in tune with the Holy Spirit and his will for the church. And in this remarkable person, Barnabas, there's one thing I want to draw your attention to. Barnabas is introduced as the son of encouragement. This is a beautiful word. Encouragement is not discipling and teaching. It's not the same as evangelism. It is affirming, confirming, supporting, coaching, and cheering. Without encouragement, a church, we, you and I, we'll never uh, do the work Christ has called us to of evangelism or discipleship. Encouragement comes from a Greek word that means to come alongside of. It means to come near, to identify closely with somebody. It means to build their confidence, uh, to create endurance in another person. It's not get going, you know, do what I've done. No, an encourager uh, comes along a person, gets into their shoes, understands where they are, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing. The word that's translated here, uh, exhort, is used numerous places. Uh, the, this word that means encouragement is used in numerous places in the New Testament. It's translated exhort. But it's always with a strong uh, proportion of comfort and affirmation. And if we were to look through these passages, I won't read the references, we'd see that encourages are patient, they're gentle, they're affectionate, they're positive, they're not argumentative. And they're more effective when they use the scriptures. Now, everybody needs encouragement. Have have you ever been too encouraged? Probably not. Everybody needs encouragement. Those who are new in Christ, uh, those who are going through difficult times, and sometimes those who are disobedient respond more to encouragement than warning. It's our responsibility. We're commanded to look around us and ask who can we encourage. There are some people that have the gift of encouragement and you could probably tell that you've got it because people want to come and be with you. They want you to hear about their problems because, because you come alongside of them and support them. But I want to challenge you. Who is it that's in your sphere of influence that needs encouragement, that you could offer some word of encouragement to. I know I didn't grow up with encouragement, so I've had to learn, just learn. But you can learn. You'll never maybe be a master, I'll never be masterful. But you can learn to, to uh, encourage people, to see and affirm them, and come alongside of them. And Not always have all the answers for them when they're in distress. Just let them know you're there. Just being there uh, for people in times of difficulty uh, is so important. Just being a friend uh, with people. Some people have such long-term challenges and hardships in their lives. They don't want to talk about those anymore. They just want someone to relate to them, not as somebody with a problem, but somebody they care about. That itself is a form of encouragement. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, may you uh, be pleased to grant that we'd be able to live this out together. Thank you for the beauty of the life of Barnabas. And we thank you, Father, for this amazing church in whose Luke's portrait is so subtle and we would uh, miss so much of it. Grant that we together might take that next uh, step uh, as a church that lay ministry might flourish among us, that where there's a need for bold initiative, it'd be taken, where there's a need to to seek you and grow in discernment, where barriers need to be uh, crossed. Lord, bring us to the place you want us to be as a church. We offer ourselves to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.